Welcome to this encore edition of Valor Radio. While Paul, Steve, and Bob take a break this week, you'll hear our interview with Gary Bykirk, recorded April 1st, 2020, on the 50th anniversary of the battle where Gary earned his Congressional Medal of Honor. This is Valor Radio. Valor, strength of mind and spirit that enables a person to face danger with resolve and determination in battle or in any other situation. Valor, like that displayed by veterans of every branch of the military throughout our community. This radio show, Valor Radio, salutes all of you who have raised your right hands to volunteer to protect and preserve our unique American way of life. Thanks for joining us and your brothers and sisters in uniform. Now, Valor Radio. Well, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coasties, and now spacies, we welcome you on in here to another edition of Valor Radio. And we are Corona safe here in our uh, COVID cleansed studio with uh, Paul Simonelli. We made things nice and clean for you before you came down. You haven't been here in the studio in a while. I have not. I have not. And it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, and it's. Uh, I think we're going to have a great show today. So I'm going to jump right into it. I, Gary Bykirk, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. Welcome, folks. We're here today to talk with Sergeant Gary Bykirk uh, on the anniversary of... uh, a battle that was a life-changing event for him. And first, I want to say uh, welcome, Gary. Thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Oh, thank you, sir. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, a blessing to be able to be here. It's better than, uh, better than not being around. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a time that I thought I would not live past 35, but uh, I've been fortunate enough to um, stick around for a few more years. Well, Gary, uh, we're here to talk about uh, a publication that came out uh, one week ago uh, called Blazing of Light, written by uh, Margus uh, Brotherton, and it's a story of, uh, of your life, uh, condensed, uh, very condensed into uh, 248 pages or so, uh, one of the fastest reads I've ever had. Uh, I will tell you, I, I was... Uh, Lucky to get an advanced copy, and I got it in the afternoon, and I didn't sleep that night. I read the book, and uh, I talked to your uh, publishing folks the next morning, uh, and she goes, I can't believe you you read the book. And once I started, I just uh, I enjoyed uh, every word of it. And uh, once again, I want to say thank you. Uh, and I want to talk about um, a few different things, if we may. First, and I'm going to hit some themes here. Uh you uh, served in, uh, in, in the Army in a very difficult time in our, our national history. Uh, there was uh, almost uh, no support 
uh, for the Vietnam War or degraded as time went on uh, in the late 60s and into the early 70s. I was only uh, 10 years old in 1968, so I'm, but I, I have very strong recollection of uh, watching the evening news and seeing the names across, scrolled across the screen. Um, and the one theme that I, that I, I saw in reading the book, uh, it seems like, and that's why I read the oath of office of joining the military when I started. It seemed that in spite of no matter what good or what bad was happening in your life, there was always, uh, you never lost faith with, uh, that oath that you took when you, uh, entered the army. Yeah, I think that, um, an oath that I was taken uh, was always very special to me. I, I am, uh, I'm not sure why, but the, the act of committing yourself to, to something uh, greater than yourself um, was always very special to me. Maybe, maybe it's because I came from a broken home when back then uh, separated families, divorced families was not very common. But, you know, growing up uh, it, for a while without a, a father, um, you know, making a commitment to someone, to something, uh, became very important to me at a, at a very early age. Well, I can tell you from uh, uh, taking uh, that same oath in uh, 1981 when I was commissioned in the military, uh, I, I have to say that it had the same effect on me and a practice that I made regular throughout my 30 years in the army was every time I promoted someone, I'm they I had them restate that oath. I thought that was part of a reminder. I don't know that it needed to be there, but it always seemed a very important part of promoting someone to remind them about uh, the power of that oath and and really what they were committing to. So I I would say that that's the first place I felt a connection with you um, in in reading this book. Yeah, the uh, and I was just thinking about. Um some of the other commitments that I've made in my life, my probably my first real commitment was to the military. But then uh, a few years later, when I when I committed myself uh, to my wife Lolly, uh, we've been married for 45 years, and that's another commitment that was very special to me, and also a commitment that was a very special part of my life because she became my battle buddy uh, through through many battles. Uh, and I'm sure if you, since you read the book, you you realize the role that she played in my wife in my life. But yeah, my commitment with her, my commitment to the military, um, my commitment to to the Mountain Yard Villagers that I lived with. Uh, that was where I really began to see how a commitment was lived out in daily life uh, among the Mountain Yard Villagers. They, it was just a tremendous, tremendous experience for me. I, I once again, I, uh, I was, I was able to relate to that, uh, Gary, because uh, as spending uh, two thirds of my career as a civil affairs officer, I found myself for extended periods in countries with people of strange cultures, some you know things I, w- I wasn't used to, and I, when you talked about, I mean, you could through the words, uh, through the author's words, you could see the the effect that it had on you, and um, I once again I. It was something that was very easy for me to feel some uh, uh, 
kinship with you uh, because I, I've ex- I think I've experienced that with uh, folks in places where I've served, mostly serving with the civilians in uh, in the places that I've served, and so that uh, once it, it's uh, it's an interesting thing, and I know. Uh, one of the themes that was recurring that you wanting to get back there, and I know whenever I came to the end of a tour, it was always it was bittersweet. I wanted to be home, and but as soon as I was home, I couldn't get my mind off of where I had come from, and I sensed that you uh, lived that experience for 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 several years after leaving Vietnam. Yeah, we uh, um, those of us that were over in Vietnam, we always would refer to. Man, I'm short. I just can't wait. I mean, I only have a short time left in Vietnam, and I can't wait to get back to the world. Um, <clears throat> but for me, uh, my world was in the jungles of Vietnam. The, uh, it was there that uh, I had the experience of finding out for myself what really mattered in life. And uh, I, I realized that the world was more than a TV and a car and those kinds of things that so many guys missed about being back home in the States. Uh, but for me, they, they were irrelevant. For me, my world became Vietnam and the, the bond, the camaraderie, the love that existed between the, uh, the 12 Americans on our team and the uh, mountain yard villagers that we lived with. It was a, uh, a, a tremendous experience. That's um, I once again I, I I'm hearing some music, so we're going to take a break, and we'll just ask you to hang on. It'll be a little quiet for you during the break here while commercials are playing, and we'll be right back with more Valor Radio and with uh, Sergeant Gary Boykirk. Paul Simonelli will be back with his guests here on WYSL ninety two point one FM ninety five point five FM West News Power ten forty AM. Your go-to for standard of specialized business insurance coverage. MGM Associates of Rochester, now serving the region and beyond in New York. Since 1984, MGM has provided leading coverage from a wide range of carriers. Not only home, condo, boat, motorcycle, and auto, but also specialized policies for all types of businesses, including nonprofits and law firms, delivery insurance, property insurance, and bonds for all needs. MGM Associates of Rochester provides auto, workers' comp, health care, and liability coverage. Choose from virtual appointments or good old in-office, in-person consults by appointment at our Penfield office. Five-time consecutive winner of the National Best Practices Award, MGM is proud to support veterans groups. For your personal business, home, or professional insurance needs, meet the experienced staff at MGM Associates. Locally and proudly owned at 1745 Penfield Road in Penfield, 381-7008 or mgminsure.com. An associate of Michigan Miller's Mutual Insurance, 2425 East Grand River Avenue, Lansing, Michigan. The Stars and Stripes Flag Store is open again. Shop at 783 South Avenue Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 5. All American-made flags, many different types, apparel, drinkware, ornaments, and more. Honor our heroes. Shop Stars and Stripes Flag Store open again. Hey, how about becoming a member of the National Warplane Museum in Geneseo, New York? Help us preserve history. Plus, you get some pretty fancy benefits. Visit us online, nationalwarplanemuseum.com. Avon Gun and Hunting Supply, a locally owned and operated gun shop here for your hunting needs. With changes in New York State laws, they'll work with you to fulfill your needs. Open from 10 a.m. Tuesday through Saturday, Avon Gun, East Main Street, next to Tompkins Community Bank. 
If you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, please call the Veterans Crisis Line at 988 and then press 1. Donate now, vocroc.org. From Niagara Falls to the Adirondacks and from Canada to Pennsylvania, you're listening to Valor Radio. Well, thank you, uh, Sergeant Bikirk, for hanging through the break here. We are back with Valor Radio, and again, your host is Colonel Paul Simonelli. Thanks, Robert. Uh, Gary, I've got to tell you, um, 30 years in the Army, I never met someone with a Special Forces tab that was an E-4. Um <laughs> <laughs> and and you know we have a pretty good military following on this show so they know what i'm talking about uh there's a couple of references in the book about things that led to you uh having trouble uh getting and staying above that rank but i mean yeah i had to re-enlist to get to e4 <laughs> <laughs> You gotta wonder. You really do. do. Do you think back on that now? Is there, was that just youthful indiscretion? Was that were you committed to always challenging authority, or, or did you have a little bit of a destructive um, personality even before your experience in Vietnam? Well, I, I, I think that I was always a very independent person. I was always a. a person that I, I felt that if I wanted something, I could go out and get it, and so I, I, there was a certain level of of uh, maybe bravado and, and that kind of thing that was there, but um, I, I also was like an out-of-the-box thinker kind of thing, and, and those are qualities that Special Forces really look for, uh, and they they do well with a uh, having a person uh, in Special Forces, but they don't work well for promotions many times. <laughs> 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 I I uh I was kind of a rebel. I had uh I was a nonconformist. Um so I think those those things uh, uh didn't work well as far as my uh, achieving any kind of success in the promotional in in the, during the ranks, but uh, I went through all my training. I got all exemplary graduation. Matter of fact, I graduated <coughs> from our medical training third in the class. And uh, actually, usually the top three people got promoted to uh, E5, <laughs> but um, they over they passed me over. They said, "Well, you're you're a good medic, but you're not going to be a sergeant yet." So. Oh my! Uh, I just I love that when I was reading it. I got I, I really did enjoy that part. But I know you're you're getting that low pay, extra low pay. Um, but uh, there was there was I think that told me a lot. Um, yeah, I was, I, I was kind of hesitant about including that in, and I, and I talked to the author, Marcus, about that, Marcus Brotherton, and, and um, I said, you know, this this might um, burst some people's bubbles about the illusions of, of me and everything. I, Are you okay with that? And and Mar- Marcus and I talked about it, and we laughed, and we said, we finally decided, yeah, let's go for it, and, and it's because it's who I am, you know? No, and I think... Yeah, I, I think for folks that have served in the military, they, they won't have any problem at all with it. Like I, I, like I said, I wish I would have they had time to put more of the stories in there that led to that. Um, I, I remember it back at Fort when I got to the 10th Special Forces at Fort Devens after I got out of the hospital. <coughs> and I'm not sure if this is in the book or not, but um, I can remember our company commander chewing me out 
And because uh, I, I came out of the hospital back in the States, I didn't want to be in the States, and I, my attitude was showing again, and, and I just didn't, I wanted to be back in Vietnam. That's where I was supposed to be going. And, but I was assigned to Fort Devens with the 10th Special Forces. They carried me as excess in the company, put me on a profile, and told me to go work at the dental clinic. And I, I remember I got so angry, I took off my beret. I wouldn't wear my beret. I wore a baseball cap. And I remember my company commander saying, you know, Gear Biker, if you would just shape up, cut your hair, start wearing your beret, following orders, I'll promote you to E6. And I looked at him and I said, eh, let me think about it. <laughs> no, that's okay, sir. <laughs> after, after two seconds of thinking, no, I don't want to be an E6. <laughs> Oh well, I I actually had one uh, I had one NCO that worked for me many years, uh, and we deployed to uh, Desert Storm together, and then in Bosnia in '96. And his goal in life was never to get above E5. In fact, I think there was some larceny involved when there when there were promotion boards. His 201 file would disappear from the stack that were going to get reviewed in these promotion boards, and it went on and on for almost a decade. And when we were in Bosnia. Uh, someone Stars and Stripes wrote a story about him being the oldest E5 in the Army. <laughs> and uh, the general promoted him, the four-star general promoted him uh, and said, "You got I can't have an E5, you know, that jumped into the Dominican Republic. Uh, <laughs> that's quite a, quite a legacy. <laughs> so... Um, and but anyway, so I understand it, and he was he was the best NCO that ever worked for me in, in thirty years. So I, once again, rank doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their with ability or capability. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to jump over the the battle portions of it, but I want people to read the book and 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 hear you know and hear about or and see for themselves and read about what what led to you being awarded the Medal of Honor. But I'm, I'm going to jump. Way down the line now that you're you're living back in Monroe County, you're working as a high school counselor, and you're seeing today's generation compared to your generation. I know my father served in World War II. Your uncle's same thing, and uh, you know, folks, that was a generation that served there. Every generation thinks the next generation isn't as tough. Uh, I know the Army works very hard to bring people up to standards that they need them to perform today it's a little they say they have to work a little harder than they did in generations gone by but could you give us some perspective because you dealt with kids for so long uh about what your thoughts are about the kids today compared to my generation and your generation sure thing sir um i think one of the people often ask me i worked with high schoolers i worked in a k-12 situation for about eight years and then I decided I wanted to focus on middle school, which was 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, 12, 13, 14-year-olds. And the reason I decided to, to concentrate and focus on them had to do with an experience that I talk about in the book, um, which is directly related to the battle. Uh, one of the first things that <clears throat> we as um, SF guys did when we got to the mountain yards was uh, we picked somebody who would be our bodyguard. And I picked a 15-year-old boy to be my bodyguard. And in the mountain yard culture, anybody that was 12 years old or older became an adult. And so they had to start functioning as an adult, which meant fighting. We had a 12-year-old that was an M60 machine gunner. So I picked this 15-year-old, maybe 14, 15-year-old, his name was Deo, to be 
jungle. And Dale and I developed a tremendous, tremendous friendship. And uh, he taught me an awful lot about living in the jungle. And he taught me a lot about life because we made a commitment to one another to always be there. And during the siege, <clears throat> I was shot very early in the, in the siege and it hit me back and I couldn't walk. But as soon as I uh, was hit, I felt somebody picking me up, and it was Dale, my bodyguard. And I remember saying to him, Dale, how'd you find me in the midst of this battle? And he said, this is where I belong. I belong beside you. And he carried me throughout that battle. Everything that I did, I did because Dale carried me. I was shot two more times uh, in the back and in the abdomen, but Dale still would not put me down uh, even though he wanted to take me down to the medical bunker and get out of the battle, I said, no, we need to stay up here. He got shot in the leg, and he couldn't carry me anymore. But when he couldn't carry me, he dragged me through that battle. And everything we continued to do, I did only because Dale was by my side. We heard a rocket coming in, and Dale rolled me over and laid on top of me to protect me, and he was killed. That experience had a, a tremendous impact on me. Uh, a lot of guilt and anger and hurt, first of all, but through the years I was able to work through that and see that and really tap into the love that we had for each other, the potential that, that Dale showed me that each young person has in their heart to be able to do something. And it doesn't depend on your age. It depends on what's in your heart. And so I made a commitment to... No matter who the young person was that I was working with, I would be optimistic, I would be hopeful, I would be committed to the fact that that young person has the potential to do some great, great things, regardless of their past, regardless of their upbringing, regardless of their social class, regardless of their race, whatever. Each of them had the potential to do something great. And so every time I went to work for 33 years and I looked at a young person's heart, I kept thinking about that, that I know something about you you may not know. I can see things in you that you can't even see in yourself. But so, I know you have the potential to do great things, to make a difference in someone else's life. And that's the attitude, that's the optimism, optimism that kept me working with young people for 33 years. So that, that, that's a great way to go to work every day, and I'm sure it made the 33 years go by very, very quickly. Um, as we come up on our uh, mid-show break, uh, I want to, after the break, I want to talk a little bit about um, after uh, your time, after you got out of the Army, uh, you left Fort Devens, and... Um, the, that period of, in your life where I guess you were going through some discovery, self-awareness, and that uh, really sort of set the stage uh, along with the experiences of the Army for um, the rest of your life. Uh, you know, we, we uh, I, I want to make sure people understand this is a uh, show plays uh, April 1st, and April 1st is the 50th anniversary of the battle that you've been describing to us. Has Coming up, uh, and we only have about a minute left in this segment, but has that affected your, have you, have you noticed anything different knowing that you're coming up on this uh, pretty significant anniversary? It, Paul, it used to be that a week before I would always end up in bed and, and stuff, and, and um, finally one day my, you know, because I wanted to just retreat, and one day my wife came in and she said, 
you got to fight this, Gary. She, she knew about the anniversary, but she's saying, you got to fight this. you got to come out and get out because there's your family out here who loves you and you need you. Coming up to April 1st was always a struggle until about maybe 10 years ago when my wife hit me with that, saying that I needed to fight, come out of that cave again, because there were people who needed me. My family needed me, and they needed me to be a father, needed me to be a husband and to love them. So I'm, uh, I look at April 1st as, with a much different perspective. We can talk more about that on after the break. All right, thank you, sir. And we'll be right back with more of Valor Radio and Sergeant Gary Bykirk. Don't forget, Valor Radio is always on in podcast form. Hey, go to the podcast page, WYSL1040.com, and just navigate with that big red button to Valor Radio. We have the last four episodes always up for you. We'll be back with more on Valor Radio on the WYSL stations. From Niagara Falls to the Adirondacks and from Canada to Pennsylvania, you're listening to Valor Radio. Fighting soldiers from the sky, fearless men who jump and die, men who mean just what they say, the brave men of the Green Parade, silver wings. And we're back uh, with Sergeant Gary Bykirk talking about uh, a new book by Marcus Brotherton, A Blaze of Light. Uh, his story, uh, Gary's story, uh, his childhood, his service in the military, and his life after the military. You know, I, uh, you're, I don't want you to laugh, but the first record I owned as a young child was a 45 of The Ballad of the Green Beret. <laughs> Well, that makes you feel good. I, I noticed that uh, you said that uh, the book, The Green Beret, by Robin uh, Moore, had an effect on your decision to join the Army versus joining the Marines with your friend. Um, and so uh, it's funny how things have that type of effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, not only Robin Moore's book, but um, I'd, written, I'd read, read another book by a news reporter named uh, Jim Lucas called Dateline. And he had had, had a uh, somewhat similar experience as Robin Moore being embedded with Special Forces troops. And he was just sending back little news reports. And some of the ones that seemed the most intriguing to me and the most appealing were those reports when he would talk about being out with uh, some Special Forces units and some of the things that they were doing uh, during the war. Um, and, so my, my interest got peaked, and uh, the idea about a challenge, uh, it just seemed ideal for me. I said, yep, that's what I want to do. I want to be a Green Beret. So, Gary, leading up to uh, 
you know, you talk about basic training at Fort Dix and your AIT advanced individual training at Fort Dix and then airborne school. And then what I guess was pre-selection, what they, they call pre-selection now in the army, but, uh, being interviewed, uh, spending time with some special forces folks. And you were, uh, one of five out of 15 that wanted to, uh, be at least have the opportunity to compete, to be in special forces. Uh, was there any time you seem like you were pretty confident you obviously you were a good athlete uh you were smart obviously when you applied yourself at school you did very well um was there any time in the training cycle where you said i just don't want to do this no um actually on the uh, on the contrary um I think maybe, I don't know if I wanted to do this, uh, but I, there were some times when I, I felt like saying, okay, I, I can do this. You know, um, There were plenty of times during a, well, back then for the pre-selection, we used to call it phase one. And there was, that was just the weeding out process. And, and they really did some tremendous things right now that uh, you can't do now in the military. But they were just trying to get you to get out. And there's, and they've, if they, they'd subject you to it, they'd go, you know, you don't have to be here. You can quit right now. And I would, I found myself saying, no way am I going to quit. And I can, it, if I just need to do one more, maybe just do one more push-up, maybe just do one more mile, I, I can do this. Um, so if, if maybe it was like I was able to take that attitude of, uh, I can't take this anymore, I want to quit. And I could, I switched that around to saying, they're not going to beat me. I'm going to beat them. I'm not going to quit. There were plenty of those moments. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think uh, Marcus Brotherton describes your first morning waking up in basic training and uh, <laughs> wondering how what you were doing there. I I. I I think yeah, we've all had a similar a experience. Shock, right? Yeah, a little yeah. bit of culture shock. Uh, yeah. But uh, well, that's that's uh, wonderful. Uh, that uh, I can see how that carried you through. Obviously, the the level that you had to achieve to get through that, just to get through that training. Uh, did uh, once you arrived in Vietnam as an E four qualified special forces medic, uh, light arms specialist. Um, and you found yourself doing what uh, probably every soldier who's been deployed someplace has had to do at some point in their life, and you were rescued from that, and that was uh, burning uh, feces detail. Yep. Uh, you were rescued from that. Um, even then, when you first arrived, no, no regret, just looking towards the – at that point, still looking towards the adventure, knowing something would work out or uh, – Getting dumped in a foreign country and completely different. So, how, what, what do you remember your first feelings arriving in Vietnam? Um, well, I, I think that uh, if I made a, I, I think I might have said to myself, you know, I, I made a mistake because I, I missed my first deployment date because I was at Fort Fort Lewis, and I met a friend there who I'd known in high school, and he was in the military there, and we went out drinking and. <laughs> Uh, rather than report and be uh, deployed on my date, I waited to about seven, eight days later. Because we used to say, well, what, am, what are they going to do? Send me to Vietnam? Or am I with to Vietnam? <laughs> so when I got there, I, I didn't get, I didn't go over my original set of orders. So they sent me to a, 
like a replacement company. And a replacement company is where you didn't want to be because you were at the mercy of the military then. And my fear was is that I might get assigned to some convention unit. So I remember especially when I was stirring that diesel-burning feces thing, um, that, man, maybe I blew it by not coming over my original orders because I sure don't want to end up with the 101st or the 173rd, uh, not after all the training that I had gone through. So when I saw that sergeant major walking by that was with it was a beret. Uh, I felt I really felt rescued because I, I was beginning to think that Vietnam was not going to be what I had trained for. Vietnam was not going to be the experience that I was hoping that I would have. I didn't want to go with a conventional unit. That's why I stayed out of the Marines because I didn't want that conventional experience. I wanted something different. I, I during um during the battle that uh, began on April first. By the way, I was able to go back and look at. Uh, several Stars and Stripes articles from the month of April uh, about how things just went on and on. But during your time in the battle that first day, did you ever experience any where you felt like you were outside of yourself looking down on yourself rather than being just caught in the moment? Uh, one time specifically is right after I got, um, <clears throat> right after I got hit the first time, uh, it was a 122-millimeter rock that exploded, and I remember uh, I threw myself on top of a, a mountain yard that I was working on, and immediately I felt like, um, I described it as like being kicked by a horse. And as soon as, the, as soon as that impact hit me, and I had, that's when I got, my whole back was riddled with shrapnel, and it hit my spine, and uh, knocked my spine out. It was like an unconscious spinal cord. That's why I couldn't walk anymore. Uh, but as soon as I got hit, it was like I was out of my body and I could I could look and I saw myself going head over heels and, and being thrown maybe about 10 or 15 feet into the four-deuce mortar pit and uh, slamming up against some sandbags. And uh, that was really the only, what I would call like an out-of-body um, looking, looking on the battle from a different perspective, uh, it was at that time. From then on, um, it was all very, very real. <laughs> Did um, and you know, for the folks that haven't read the book or don't know your story, uh, the the battle could have ended for you right at that moment. There was no expectation, given your wounds or anything else, that. There was no expectation that you would do anything else, and but for your stubbornness—is that the right term? Uh, I'll go. I'll go with that. Um, but for your stubbornness, you you forced uh, you stayed in the battle as long as uh, your body gave you any ability to do so, and, and your mind gave you any ability to do so. At uh, that was it. Just at that point, just reacting, just doing. Or was there was there any thought going through your mind other than just doing the next thing to survive and help? Well, what was going through my mind was this is what I was trained to do. And uh, when Dale picked me up, he wanted to take me right down to the medical bunker. But I said, no, um, we have to stay up here. So he, he patched me up as best he could, and he continued to uh, carry me around because we knew that we had to we had to take care of the people that were being uh, that were being killed at the time. 
at that early in the morning, the only people that were usually up were women and children. So most of the casualties at first were just all women and children. And then very, very quickly, uh, the enemy had broken through uh, and was, was in the wire, and so it got to be very close quarter combat. Um, <clears throat> there was just no way that um, we could uh, not be not be there. Uh, you know, I'm often asked, at any point did I feel afraid? And I, I, I honestly can say that um, at no point during that battle, even after I was shot the second and third time, um, I honestly didn't feel any fear. And uh, I know some people say, if somebody says they never felt fear in the battle, they're either lying or they're just really crazy. Um, but I don't think I was either. I wasn't lying and I wasn't really crazy because what I felt in that battle that was even stronger than any kind of fear for my own life was I felt the love. I felt the love for the, the mountaineers. I was, we were defending them. We were being attacked. Somebody had to defend them. Somebody had to fight or we would have been overrun. And so my love for the mountaineers people is what kept me going along with my love for Dale and Dale's love for me. There'd be so many times, Paul, when, when we would be looking at each other and we'd smile and we'd just keep on doing what we were doing. And there, there was just a, a passing of love between the two of us throughout that battle um, that was much stronger than any kind of fear that I was going to die. Love is a very powerful emotion that can drive away all kinds of things. And I experienced the power of love during that battle. All right, and uh, we're going to take a break right now and come back for our last segment, and I've been saving this for the last segment. I want to talk a little bit about your faith journey and uh, how that has affected, uh, you know, the other, I guess, the third uh, leg in the bench in your life. Um, And when we come back, more with uh, Sergeant Gary Bykirk, Medal of Honor winner, uh, and we're, we're... I celebrating is not the right word. We're commemorating the 50th anniversary of the battle that uh, resulted in uh, Gary being awarded the Medal of Honor. And we'll be back shortly with more Valor Radio. We're going to bump out uh, with uh, the cadets of the U.S. Mer- uh, uh, Military Academy. This is Mansions of the Lord.
your go-to for standard of specialized business insurance coverage. MGM Associates of Rochester, now serving the region and beyond in New York. Since 1984, MGM has provided leading coverage from a wide range of carriers. Not only home, condo, boat, motorcycle, and auto, but also specialized policies for all types of businesses, including nonprofits and law firms, livery insurance, property insurance, and bonds for all needs. MGM Associates of Rochester provides auto, workers' comp, health care, and liability coverage. Choose from virtual appointments or good old in-office, in-person consults by appointment at our Penfield office. Five-time consecutive winner of the National Best Practices Award, MGM is proud to support veterans groups. For your personal business, home, or professional insurance needs, meet the experienced staff at MGM Associates. Locally and proudly owned at 1745 Penfield Road in Penfield, 381-7008 or mgminsure.com. An associate of Michigan Miller's Mutual Insurance, 2425 East Grand River Avenue, Lansing, Michigan. Hi, I'm Alan Ginsberg of the AM Ginsberg Advisory Group, LLC. I know a lot of you have heard enough of my ad regarding business continuation. We started this campaign in September 2020, and I want you to know the response has just been tremendous. The best part is that we're seeing the results of our efforts. Business owners who have been procrastinating on how to make sure their business continues on a successful path are starting to make the changes that are needed. Whether it be talking to their children, key employees, or favorite competitors, they are starting to get things done, making sure that their life's work doesn't just go by the wayside. Give us a call at 585-377-4720. We'll sit down and talk, find out what your business and family goals are. That's 585-377-4720. Thank you. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. AM Ginsburg Advisory Group and the Securities America companies are separate entities. The Stars and Stripes Flag Store is open again. Shop at 783 South Avenue Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 5. All American-made flags, many different types, apparel, drinkware, ornaments, and more. Honor our heroes. Shop Stars and Stripes Flag Store open again. As a veteran of the United States military, I can finally get the opportunity to enjoy special events, things that we couldn't afford, thanks to Vet Dicks. Every empty seat at a concert, a game, or a play is a missed opportunity to say thanks to a veteran and service member. We can give our veterans a special event where they, too, can create their own cherished memories. Visit VetTix.org. Find out how you can make a difference in a veteran's life. You're listening to Fallow Radio with Colonel Paul Simonelli. Fascinating show today, and we are back here on Vela Radio again. Per, uh, Colonel Paul Simonelli. Thanks, Robert. Gary, I've got to ask you. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, I've got pages and pages here I want to talk to you about, and we're down to the last nine or ten minutes of the show. Uh, any chance we can get you back again? <laughs> oh, if I can get it in the schedule. Well, I'm, I'm quarantined, so I guess I do have a pretty old free schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean, I guess I do mean to put you on because we're just, I'm enjoying this so much. And like I said, I've got pages of notes here I wanted to go through. And I feel like we're, I can't do it justice right now. So, um, so can we plug this for part two next week, folks? What, what do you say? Sure. Uh, thank I'm, you. I'm game. Right, thank you. I really appreciate it. So uh, if, as long as I know we're going to do that, uh, I'm going to stick with uh, uh, Vietnam and your recovery, your physical recovery from your injury uh you were a medevac that day you had uh extreme injuries uh i think there was a, a question about whether you were even going to be able to survive um and it took 
quite a while um, for you to get, first of all, back on your feet. And then uh, and what, what what was your motivation then? Was it you wanted to get back to Vietnam and back to the mountain yards? What, what did you see as your overriding motivation to get better? Um, you know, there's nothing is nothing more motivating uh, to want to get better and to fight than <clears throat> being an intensive care ward and and, and realizing you're dying. Uh, I, I in the book I tell the story about the first time I woke up and I and I realized that I was in the hospital, and I did a uh, a self check and. I couldn't move my waist down, and I had my intestines were out on my uh, on my stomach. Had ileostomy, um, so, but the scary thing was is that after that first self check, I found myself going unconscious, and that was scary. Now I've been unconscious plenty of times before in college, but this was this was really different, you know, because you're you're losing consciousness, blackness is overtaking you, and you just feel so helpless. And then you listen to the guys next to you who are taking their last breath, and you watch them put a sheet over your head, over their heads, and you, you watch them in their last moments of dying, and then you find yourself going through that same experience. That's a scary thing. And it's what I called my hand-to-hand combat with death. It was like I took every tool, every weapon that Special Forces had instilled in me, and I tried to fight death. And it was like Beth was just saying, is that the best you got, Gary? Because you're no match for me. And I would go unconscious. And um, going unconscious like that and then waking up and finding yourself going through unconscious again three, four times, um, that is really scary. And that's motivating. After an experience like that, uh, when you wake up and you realize that, hey, I am, I am awake. This is it. I've, I'm not dead. That's a real motivation. Um, nothing more motivating in a person's life than uh, than a near death. There's the saying we had in Vietnam was is that to really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, life has a meaning. The protected will never know. I fought for life in that hospital bed, and uh, I almost died. And, but when I woke up and when I came to. Um, with some other experiences. I met a chaplain, and all that had a big difference in my life, but I really began to understand what it meant to really live because I almost died. All right. And, Gary, thank you so much for that. Uh, now that we have you committed to coming back, I'm, I'm going to uh, finish up this uh, segment this week's show on Valor Radio. And I was going to end with that quote uh, that you just gave. It's uh, uh, it's something that I wrote down when I and I underlined when I first read the book, um, and I was going to ask you about that, and you 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 worked it right in. Um, the The other quote that uh, jumps to mind as we finish up here uh, was your discussion uh, before you came into the military with uh, uh, the veteran that uh, at Brockport, and he said, I guess he said something to the effect, "The military will kill you, or it'll make you uh, a better man." Right. And um, as as we finish up the show, uh, that that seems to be another recurring theme. And you you've said it oftentimes today that uh, but for the military, it, it 
gave you uh, or let you build on the tools that you were given, the gifts you were given, and gave you the strength and the knowledge you needed to survive. Right. Yeah, the other part of that that quote, uh, sir, is that to those who fight for it, life has a meaning the protected will never know. And there were certain experiences that I that I had in the military um, that I guess like Mr. Matthews told me, he said it'll either kill you or make you a better man. And being in the military put me in a, an experience where I had to fight for my life. Right. And consequently, life took on a meaning that those who are protected, those who don't want to fight, those who would just rather stay safe, I'm don't want to be committed, to want to stay in their comfort zone, they don't ever know what life is really about. But those who fight for it, they know they have a special meaning for life. And those of us who serve uh, know what life is really about. That's why it's so important for those of us who serve to be able to articulate those things. Gary, thank you so much. Congratulations on the publication of uh, Blaze of Light by Marcus Brotherton. Uh, the, the story of your life. For our future's responsibility. Yeah, I'm real good on the pressure. Being all that I.